Welcome to Stories That Stir. Woohoo! And every year I'd go up to the board and I'd go, oh, I'm not on there. How can I not be on there? I'm working my guts out. Welcome. I am so very happy to have you here. It's going to be an incredible night. So some of you don't know what Stories That Stir is all about and why I created it. Essentially, I created it to break down barriers, stir conversation and inspire positive change. Because I really believe that when we share our stories, exactly what I said, we get, give people the chance to open their site. It, all those invisible bonds that exist between people actually become visible and the fear we have and the judgments we tend to make about people, their situation, their race, their gender, just falls away when we get an understanding of where people are coming from. Tonight, I'm really excited about the theme. It's all about courage. I just think courage is such an important theme because as humans, we all have fears. <laughs> and a lot of us step through those fears. And when we do that, we evolve and transform as humans. And some of us take a lot longer to step through that fear and some of us never do. I am super excited to introduce our last speaker. I'm currently reading her recently published book, <laughs> How to Eat a Shit Sandwich and Keep Smiling. <laughs> I know everything about Annette. <laughs> so I've known her on social media and we're in the similar industries and have been for many years. But I actually met with Annette at three o'clock today to go for a walk and talk to her properly in person. And I felt like I cheated a bit because I know all her secrets. <laughs> well, they're not really secrets because she's put them all in her book. But I highly recommend them, the book <laughs> and her secrets. <laughs> so when Annette Densham was 10 years old, she used to practice being a TV host. So instead of watching Home and Away or Neighbours like what I was doing, she was pretending to be, um, uh, sorry, watching her idols, Ray Marden and Liz Hayes, ask the tough questions and dig up juicy stories. Sticking her toe in the local newspaper at the age of 15, she started writing articles for The Australian, The Daily Telegraph, um, The Finn Review and other print publications. And then she started her own corporate communication company, co-founded the Audacious Agency. I am very excited to invite Annette to the stage because she's going to reveal a story in her book that she's never shared verbally um, in public. So please welcome Annette. I really was that geeky. I was standing there, you know, with my hands like this and it was, it was all I ever wanted to do was to be a journalist. When, you know, when you're 10 years old, 11 years old, people start saying to you, what do you want to do when you grow up? And most kids, like, if they're anything like my children, they're like, I don't know, be a Twitch star, be a YouTube star. Well, when I was 10, that wasn't a thing. But because we'd moved so many times, my mother was a gypsy and really bad at picking men, that we would move, she'd go, get into a relationship It'd go sour, we'd move. So by the time I was 18, we'd lived in almost 90 houses. Like, if anybody's moving, I'm really, really good at packing and unpacking a house. I can help you out. Just give me a ring. I'll be there to help you. So I spent a lot of time in the school library because I was always the new kid. 
You know, by the time I was 10, we'd been to four primary schools, we'd moved states. I was really shy and I was bullied a lot because I was very tall, very broad and I, I must have had a target on my back that said, pick on me and make my life fucking miserable because that's what these boys did at almost every single school I went to. So I spent a lot of time in the library. So when this question came up with people saying, what do you want to do when you grow up? I thought about what I was really good at. Now the words of my mother echoed in my head, you're such a sticky beaconette. I was always asking questions. I was always like digging into people's stories, wanting to know what made them tick, who they were, where they came from. You know, even as a little kid, my mum would find me sitting on a you know, bench outside the supermarket talking to some random stranger. And I can tell you there's lots of things I've heard that I cannot unhear. So I went to the library, which was what I like to do, and I went, okay, I'm going to go and find a book on what you can do with all of these things that I'm good at. And I came up with journalism and I went, you know what, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a journalist. So everything I did albeit a blip from when I was 16 to 20 with a boy that shall remain nameless but is a major cockhead. (laughs) I just worked towards being a journalist. Everything I did, the the subjects I studied at school, the university degree that I did, it was all to become a journalist. So I got a job with Fairfax in Brisbane And I thought I'd made it. It was like, oh, my God, I've got my foot in the door. You know, all these people are telling me how hard this is. And I've just breezed in. This is like, this is meant to be. The gods are smiling on me. This is, it's going to happen. So I worked there for a couple of years. And I I quickly realised that there really weren't many jobs in Brisbane for journalists. You know, a lot of the newspapers were closing down. At the time, we had the Courier Mail and the Sun. The Sun had disappeared. There was just the Courier Mail left. And I was told, unless I had a degree, I wouldn't get a job there. So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go and get a degree. So I went back to high school and I redid Year 12 because I actually spent most of Year 11 wagging it. Um, smoking cigarettes and watching Days of Our Lives and eating deep-fried potato skins, which are really nice with lots of salt. So I thought, I'm going to have to go back and do my Year 12 again. So I did that. So I was working full-time and going to high school at, I think I was 19. So back to high school. I nailed it. Got into QUT in Brisbane went in to do a Bachelor of Communication majoring in journalism and it's like, okay, like there's the other foot in the door. I'm, I'm really going to make it this time. But then the, the bureau chief said to me, Annette, you're not going to make it in Brisbane. You're going to have to go to Sydney. That's where all the jobs are. I was like, all right then, okay, how do I make this happen? So I found out that News Limited was having a what they call a copy exam copy person exam so it's your I need three feet because that was my third foot in the door you had to go set this exam I studied like does anyone remember who Boutros Boutros Gali is like I knew everything about the man you know who he was what he did where he came from because he was like big in the news I just knew everything that was going on in the world at the time hopped on one of those Greyhound buses and this is around the time that there'd been a couple of major bus accidents. So I was like, 
I couldn't afford a plane fare because I could barely afford to feed myself. So I've hopped on this bus thinking two things are going to happen. I'm going to make it to Sydney or I'm going to die. I made it, obviously I made it to Sydney because I'm still here. So I went and sat the exam and I got in. It was like they only took so many people each year and I nailed the exam. It was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is really going to happen. So I came home, I packed up my red, white and blue stripy bags with all of my possessions, which didn't amount to much because that cockhead that I mentioned, yeah, I'd left that relationship with absolutely nothing except for my clothes and my books and I packed it all up, I hopped on a train and I moved to Sydney. I didn't know anybody, I just went, I'm, I'm going to make this happen. Somehow I ended up living with this guy in this two-bedroom unit with him and his mum and his dad and his sister who I've learnt what a golden shower was. Yeah, it was a weird family. It was really weird. I used to hide in the bedroom because it was like, oh, my God, these people are strange. So I started going to work and it was like, I've made it. I'm here. I'm working at News Limited in Holt Street you know, the home of the Australian and the Daily Telegraph and the Sunday Telegraph, where these journalists that I've been reading for most of my life work, I get to talk to them and see them every day. They're going to guide me, they're going to instruct me, they're going to help me on my journey to become, you know, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. Except they didn't. Most of them were fucking assholes. I have never in my life experienced bullying, sexual harassment and the, the dwindling of my self-esteem as much as I did in the four years that I worked for News Limited. There was no guidance. There was no help. It was dog eat dog. And all of the other copy people who were vying for these cadetships, if you turned around you would probably find a knife in your back. It was one of the most toxic places I've ever worked in my life. So the general rule of copy... You've probably never heard what a copy person is. It sounds really weird. And I'd never heard of it until I applied to do the exam. Essentially, back in the day, this is in the 90s, you would become a copy person, which is basically a euphemism for slavery. You got paid very little and you were abused and you know, mocked by some of these most senior middle-aged journalists. Um, there's a really great story in my book about what happened to one of them. Um, I think he's dead. I'm hoping he's dead now because if he reads the book, he'll know what I did to him. And it involved a milkshake and spit. <laughs> he deserved it. Let me tell you, he deserved it. So... I'm fronting up every day to these people who are treating me like a slave. The next step is to become a cadet. So it's kind of an apprenticeship. So you become a cadet and then you become a graded journalist. And the competition was so fierce, so fierce. So they, you would do these exams and then they would interview you, you'd go through the process and they'd pick their you know, limited number of cadets to go through to the next round. For three years... I'm either really fucking stupid or I'm very tenacious. I'll leave you to decide that. I'm going to go with tenacious because that makes me feel a whole lot better about myself. Every year, two or three times a year, they'd have these intakes. And every year I'd go up to the board and I'd go, 
oh, I'm not on there. How can I not be on there? I'm working my guts out. I'm doing everything that's asked of me. I'm picking up people's dry cleaning. I'm going to get their coffees. You know, I'm ringing their wives and I'm telling them they won't be home. I'm writing. You know, for a year I wrote uh, a column for The Australian being paid $220 a week to work as a journalist because I was slave labour. They could get it out of me. And after the fourth time I'd been looked over... I went up to the editor of The Australian, very well-known man, and I said, could I have a conversation with you, please? Because I'd really like to understand what's going on. What am I doing wrong? I don't understand what I'm doing wrong. He said, all right, Annette, come and we'll sit down and we'll have this conversation. I can still see his desk. It was covered in newspapers and magazines. You know, you could barely see anything. There was coffee cups everywhere and he's sitting there, I'm sitting here. And I said, can you explain to me what I'm doing wrong? And he said, Annette, you're not doing anything wrong. However, don't you hate it when people go, however? It's like, I'm not going to like this. However, we're a little bit concerned you're too vivacious for the Australian. I took a deep breath and I went, you're fucking kidding me. (laughs) And he went, see, that's what we worried about. And I said, you've just insulted me. You've just said that you really only want boring people to work for your newspaper, that you're not interested in people who are inquisitive and forthright and push back. You want people to toe the line. I'm not going to do that. And why would you not want someone who's got the guts and the courage to ask questions when they're uncomfortable to be writing for your paper? And he said, oh, you know, look, Try again next time. And that's when I went, nah, I'm, I'm done. I've, I'm, I'm, I've had enough. I can't do it anymore. I cannot live. Like by this time I'm 25 years old and I'm earning $220 a week. I have nothing to my name. I work 24-7. Every time I open my mouth and I push back, I get punished I spent three months in the radio room, which is this dark, gloomy little beige room with no, no windows where you sat and you listened to police scanners. And I did that for three months from midnight to dawn. I forgot how to talk because the only people I talked to was uh, radio room to night car. There's a 2742 happening in Merrickville. You know, please attend. That's, that was my life. My life was chips and gravy and two-minute noodles. And I got really good at working out who were the soft-touch journalists that I could hit up for a schooner at the Evening Star Hotel. I made friends with a drug dealer just so he would give me drugs so I could numb my pain because I just kept showing up because that's what I was taught to do. You dig in, you don't give up, you don't quit. And I was like, I can't do that anymore. So one of my biggest values is fairness. It's rippled through my whole life. Social justice, I hate seeing people being given a a hard deal, being given a raw edge. And I went, well, maybe it's time for me to stand up for myself. Maybe it's time for all of these other copy people who hate how they're being treated, absolutely despise some of these horrible people who 
put you down every single day because you've got a dream and a desire to be something more. So I went around to all my fellow copy people, there's probably about 30, 40 of us, and I said, you know what, the way that these, this organisation treats us is wrong. You know, there's workplace legislation that says there are certain minimal expectations we should be expecting in the workplace. We didn't have a union. We had no one to protect us. If you went to HR, guess whose side they were on? They weren't on mine. They were on Rupert's side. So I said, we should do something. If, like, if we join forces, then maybe we can, we can do something. We can overthrow these people. Like, we can take over the world. Guess how many people went, yeah, Annette, that's a great idea. Big fat zero. No, no, like, I don't want to upset my career opportunities. And it's like, yeah, but, like, don't you want to be able to look yourself in the mirror? No, look, you do it, and if it works, we'll support you. It's like, hmm, all right. So by this stage, they realise that I'm not very happy with what I, where I'm at. So I've been, sh- I've been shafted off to the sports department, filing finance reports. I don't even know how that is a combination because if you've ever met any sports journalists, they're not filing finance reports, maybe tries or goals, but certainly not finance report. So I've used the time because no one was really interested in me anymore. My colleagues have decided that I was a pariah and the senior journalists were sick of me pushing back. So I picked up the yellow pages, remember that thing? It wasn't just to hold your computer screen up with, it actually had numbers in it. And I started looking for lawyers and I went, you know what, I'm gonna sue these fuckers. So I went through the phone book and I started ringing people on Rupert Murdoch's dime. Thanks, mate. (laughs) We didn't have mobile phones then. I couldn't afford a phone at home, so I had to use something. So I've started calling these solicitors, nah, 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 too hard, too hard, too expensive. You've ever tried to hire a solicitor? $220 a week doesn't get you much. Until I came across this law firm, Phillips Fox, it no longer exists. And I spoke to a young solicitor and told her my story. And she went, I think you've got a good case. And I went, really? I was so used to everybody saying, no, forget it, walk away. This is the way it's always been, Annette. You should just put up with it. It's like, no, that's not good enough. We're human beings. We don't deserve to be treated like this. So we started the process of suing Rupert Murdoch for poor workplace conditions. About two weeks into the paperwork being filed, I got an offer from News Limited for $5,000, which, you know, when you're so poor as I was, was a lot of money. And guess what I did? I said no. (laughs) It's like, no, I want to have my day in court. I want people to hear what's happening. So off we went to court and went for a week. All of these people who I'd worked with, who I admired, who I hated, who I respected, you know, that whole mix were there on the stand trying to debunk my argument. I was the only person in my corner and the judge found in News Limited's favour. You you, you could have guessed that, couldn't you? Yeah, it was never going to go my way. And I remember walking out of that courtroom with my stockings on going, oh, who wears these stupid things, you know, trying to be the good corporate person. And the solicitor said, it's not over. We can appeal. 
And I went, all right, let's do that. What's that going to cost? And she said, well, we've got to get a QC. And I was like, oh, that sounds expensive. And she said, leave it with me. I know someone. So she found this amazing man who gave his time freely to me. He looked at the judgment from the original case and he went, I think you've got a good case here. I I would love to argue this for you. So he did. Two days in court, we sat there appealing the judgment. The judge, I remember the day the judge came out and I was sitting there like my poor little legs are shaking, my hands are shaking. And he goes, you've got a good case. These things shouldn't be happening. However... I cannot find in your favour because retrospectively of the damage it would do to this organisation because it would have opened them up to years, years of claims of people like me who had just been putting up with this horrible treatment and I walked out and my life was over. I can remember standing in the rain this evening. It was a big thunderstorm. I was living at Bellevue Hill and just I stood there the whole storm and just cried. And I went, my dream's over. What do I do with my life now? Because this is all, there was no backup plan. There was nothing else I wanted to do. And the biggest newspaper company in Australia was not the place that I could be. And back then there weren't that many options. It was TV, radio, it was magazine or newspapers. And he owned a lot of them. My job prospects were very limited. So I spiralled into depression. I locked myself in my bedroom. I smoked lots of really good weed. I watched lots of Star Trek. I vomited until I was so skeletal and thin that my friends were worried about me until a really good friend of mine, which was my drug dealer. (laughs) It's amazing how close you get to these people. Said, I really think that you need to talk to somebody. So he took me off to a psychologist and I did the work that I needed to do. And it wasn't long until I packed up my red, white and blue bags and I headed home to Brisbane with my tail between my legs, totally humiliated and embarrassed that this person in her year 12 high high school yearbook had said what are you going to be when you grow up I'm going to be a journalist and then prime minister there's still time for that and I realized as I was writing my book like how to eat a shit sandwich how many of us have eaten shit sandwiches in our life so many like we all and what I realized is that life is not about one moment of courage it's about those rolling moments of courage is that I took on Goliath. I was little David standing there with my little pokey stick. But as I look back on my life, I go, there are all these little moments where I've just shown up, where I've rolled with it, where I've gone, you know what, the best thing that I can do is pick myself back up and just continue to walk forward. I truly believe our stories don't define us. They shape us. And it's up to us how we let those stories shape us. We can live with regret and with heartache. And I could have done that. I could have spiralled into alcoholism and drug addiction. It would have been so easy. I was so close to being at that point. But I didn't. 
because you know what? I'm not going to let that man win. I'm going to show him that regardless is that I'm still going to be what I'm going to be and he can't stop me. He can have all the money in the world and he probably doesn't know who I am. He probably doesn't even care but I care and I know I was speaking to my friends that that court case made significant changes in that workplace that continue to roll on after I left. Now, all of those, most of those people have never, ever spoken to me again because I made them uncomfortable. But isn't that what courage is? Is showing up and making people uncomfortable and making them realise that if you're willing to follow your values and your dreams and your goals, you can make a difference. Thank you. <laughs> wow, that takes guts, hey? Um, and some of Annette's stories remind me of my time working at Channel 9, but that's a whole other evening, so we won't go there. <laughs> exactly, all the ex-journo you know, journo people. Um, but that brings us to the end of the night. So that was Stories That Stir Curry. <laughs> If you'd like to buy tickets to the next Stories That Stir event, the link tree is in the show notes.